0: Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Certified Forgotten, your premiere. Let's say premiere. Actually, we've got a more prestigious guest from a better podcast on the show, but for now, we'll say premiere for podcast. Um, It. We're coming to you on Tuesday, June 2nd. The world is on fire. We're all super fucking out of it. So this will probably drop in about three or four weeks. By that time, hopefully, things will have gotten a little bit back on focus, Um all the, the protests and stuff that are going on right now will have brought a lot of government agencies and stuff to the table. I don't mean to start this super heavy, but like it's been a fucking week and it's only Tuesday. So if this episode's a little weird, uh, there's your reason why. Wanted to give you the background. That's why we're recording. Uh, I am, as always, one half of your Matt hosts. I am Matt Monagle. I am joined by my partner in crime, um, my buddy, uh, the trace to my Joe, honestly, Matt Donato. How are you doing, bud?
1: Uh don't know if I'm offended by that or taking that as a compliment, so I'll just keep rolling with it. And yeah, I'm really tired, and I can't wait for this uh, year, millennium, century to be over.
0: Yeah, amen to that. Um, so if this is your first episode of Certified Forgotten, which it probably isn't, but just in case, we are here to talk about movies uh, of the Rotten Tomatoes era, or right before, that have five or fewer reviews. It's our sort of arbitrary cutoff where we can look and see the kind of films that either did not... Get initial coverage, or whose coverage has not really withstood the test of time, uh, and as a you know, as a consequence of that, some of these films have been forgotten, and it's our job to recover them. And we have a uh, we have a film that actually pretty much dates right to the beginning of the Rotten Tomatoes era. Today, we're going to be talking about the Nameless, and it was brought to us by today's special guest. Um, Donato, you're gonna you're gonna do the introduction, but like uh, again, like this is the bigger and better podcast we brought on, so I'm excited to have him on here, so he can just relax and not have to write stuff down and be like running the, the trains and stuff. He can just be our guest and talk off the cuff. Introduce him, Matt.
1: Yeah, we'll let Monogle write all the stuff down and do all the work uh, as I sit here and provide color commentary, as we do every week. But I am happy to have joining us on the podcast uh, one of my colleagues at Bloody Disgusting. That would make us. You know him as one half of the Horror Queers podcast, but he's so much more than a queer who loves horror. He's Canadian, Mr. Joe (laughs) Lipsit. Hello. I love that you worked in the Canadian angle because I am loud and proud. I wasn't going to let that go because I believe... What what was your column called on Blade Disgusting for a little bit when you were writing remakes? Wasn't it like Maple Some or...
2: Well, so there, there was a remake column and then you stole that from me because I I did. I want to make sure that was in there. Yep. Yep.
1: (laughs) I asserted my dominance. Yep.
2: Oh, I see. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, Way to, way to bring that out in pride month there.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's a a good look for Donato.
0: Real great look for Donato. Oh my God. Can I like, can I frame this audio and put it on my wall? That is the best. Oh, we're leaving (laughs) it. So in there, I just, I I want, I want to get up every morning and look at it and be like fucking Donato.
2: It's okay. It's not like we queers need like jobs or anything like that. You know, the white men have really had it hard and particularly these last couple of weeks. So really,
1: I'm glad you can recognize that. Thank you, Joe.
2: (laughs) No, the column to which you may have been more politely referring to is a Canadian horror column that I somewhat infrequently write called Maple
1: Syrup Massacre. Yes, I had I had to make sure that was in there because I love that name. (laughs)
2: Yeah, it's it's a lot of fun, but I kind of put myself into, I I backed myself into a bit of a corner, because originally it was just going to be kind of straightforward reviews of films that people may have not, they may not have known it was Canadian, or they may not have realized that there was like a little more to it. And then all of a sudden, it became like really deep dive cultural analyses. And it became a little bit daunting to try to pick a good film that was going to have juicy things to talk about. So uh, sometimes I just have to step away from it and then I bring it back a couple months later.
0: Yeah, it's always tough when you, when like, and this is this is going to sound like I'm being flippant towards a lot of us film critics. It isn't. It's always sort of tough when you start to write something and it ends up smarter than you intended it to be because then you're like, well, now I have to do that every time, right? Like where was right. my where was my sort of like glib, lighthearted exploration of genre films? Like nope, now I'm now I'm looking at representation and history and different issues and you're like, well, okay. Uh, you know, this pays the same as the thing I could knock off in 30 minutes, so guess which one I'm going to do.
2: Oh yeah, a hundred percent. There were so many times where I was just like, why am I doing this to myself? I could just be like, Hey, people should watch Pontypool. It's a really good film. And instead I'm like, I'm going to look at Pontypool as a representation of the fact that Canada has two official languages and it's a source of historical tension,
0: I mean,
1: I, which is no, the one I mean, I've not been able to write.
0: <laughs> I was going to say, I, I would really like to read that. So please write it.
1: Yeah, and like not to prod the wound a little more, but on that revenge uh, remake column that I do for Blade Disgusting, I I do the same thing where I go on these like two thousand word deep dives comparing mm-hmm. each film so meticulously and down to the smallest detail, and then I post it, and the commenters immediately go are like, I, I like the Blade Disgusting commenters a lot of the times; they're pretty nice to me. But on the remake column, it's always, "Oh, this isn't even an argument. I'm not even gonna read this article," and I'm like, "No, but the whole point is read the article because go deep on it, and I know it's ah." Uh,
2: Mm-hmm. like if you just wanted to read a original nightmare on elm street is better than the remake like yeah no shit we all know that Duh. But don't you want to like dive into it a little bit deeper yeah you're probably mis- not
0: your first mistake donato was actually caring that anybody ever reads it as opposed to just turning it in and wiping it from your brain forever yeah
2: oh, I, wish I,
1: I wish i had that ability sometimes
2: it's better to just not read the comments i know Mm -hmm. that's what our colleague megan navarro told me because one time i I definitely fixated on comments and i was so angry and then i noticed that she had similar kinds of comments and i was like oh megan how do you deal with this and she said oh i submitted and that
1: i never look at it again yep i i need that i need that kind of discipline (laughs) because i i do not have it
2: well, I think because part of the problem with us as writers is that I don't know about YouTube, but I never want to write into a vacuum. It's the same with podcasting. I look at it as a conversation. So if I'm doing it and I don't get any kind of response, then I either think what I wrote is stupid or that it's not engaging for people and i try to then you know kind of do what monocle suggested which is one up myself oh okay i need to make it more interesting more varied Mm -hmm. more nuanced more detailed but the reality is that a lot of the time we are kind of just putting work out into the world and then we can't control how people engage with it but more problematically sometimes people just look at it and say well i read the title
1: and then i jumped to the bottom and wrote my disdain That is the plight of everything that we do (laughs) is literally the, (laughs) yeah, I don't want to write into a vacuum. My reviews are meant to start a conversation. Like when I write a film review, I want someone to read it and then have their own ideas and engage further. Like I like to see my reviews as a jumping point for a larger conversation that everyone can have, whether it's negative or positive. And yes, when there's no conversation that follows after I go, huh, all right. Hmm. I don't know if my ideas mean anything anymore. Cool.
2: Yeah. Cause like, I didn't need to write this out. I knew what I thought of it. I wanted to write this so that other people could tell me what they thought of it.
1: And then you just get a blanket. This movie sucks. All right. <laughs> All right. Cool. Thanks. How do you guys care doggy about this 37. Movie? <laughs> All right, Monica. Sorry. I've been jacking your time here. You can get no. to the uh, interview questions.
0: No, no, no. You're good. You're good. It's, you know, it, at the end of the day, I think this is why community matters, is because, like, the bare minimum for me is that there are a handful of people that if one of them reads it and was like, Hey, good job. Like I'm good. That's all the praise I need and I'm ready to like go back and and do the next piece. So it's always nice to have a couple of people in your corner who are basically like, you know, and not people that reads every, everything you write, but like the right people that if one of them happens to read it and nobody else, it doesn't really make a splash. Nobody else really talks about it. You're like, that's good enough. You know, that person Mm -hmm. noticed it. And so like that, I respect that person. They must at least not disrespect me i can I can live with this as the outcome of the article that I just
2: wrote. Yeah, it can be tricky though because you you have to almost be mindful of the fact that if you're living for the admiration or the likes or the retweets and that kind of stuff, it can be very damaging to yourself as a critic or as an artist, because at the end of the day, if you don't get that, it doesn't make your work less valuable. It just may mean that it dropped at a bad time or that that topic doesn't resonate with people in the same way that it maybe does with you. But I've definitely noticed that in the time that I started to write more, I've become more precious about feeding off of those responses. And sometimes it's better to be able to take that step back and say, you know what, if people don't like it or don't respond to it, I'm still okay.
0: Yeah. And it, it helps. I think Um, one of the the weird things about the type of writing that I do is I, I do a lot of reviews and features for the Austin Chronicle, which is an alt weekly here in Austin, Texas. And, you know, on the one hand it's in print. Oh my God. Like it's, you know, I walk around the, to Austin and during normal times and every restaurant or something has a copy of the thing that I wrote right in there. You can like pick it up and flip through it. At the same time, you, you don't ever get any feedback that way. Like when you, when you write, especially for a smaller alt weekly, you know, nobody is like cutting out a copy of the article that you wrote and like mailing it to the office and being like, I have some notes for the writer. It just, it just sort of <laughs> exists to be passively consumed. And it doesn't attract the same kind of industry audience that other publications do so it's like it is it is amazing i don't want to knock it like i love writing for the chronicle i'm super proud of what the chronicle does i'm a huge supporter of the coverage not just of the arts but politics and everything else uh but it keeps it does keep you humble when you when you realize that like oh you know like i'm yeah you know, i'm i kind of i write it and then you know maybe somebody makes their decision to see a movie based on what i wrote but i'll never know and that's okay i did my right. job if somebody was informed in that way or or that regard. I was
1: I remember a lot, um, I think it was Fantastic Fest one time. And I, I again, I confess that I am 100% somebody who cares about who is reading my work and who's sharing it. And I, I don't want to be I don't want to be that person. But there is just a little part of me that always wants to keep getting better and get ahead. So I feel like if my audience isn't growing as quickly as I want it to, I get caught up on that. But in any case, I was at Fantastic Fest hanging out with uh, my editor at Slashville, uh, Jacob Hall. Mm-hmm. And I was just kind of talking to him about it. And I was just kind of saying, like, yeah, man, really proud of the stuff I do for you guys. But, like, it doesn't always get the best reception. Sometimes it just dies and doesn't go anywhere. And then he looked at me and was like, why do you care? I paid you for the article. And I was <laughs> like, yes. I was like, that's a very good point, Jacob. Yes. I completely understand that. But, like, you know, I kind of, you know, it makes me doubt things as a writer myself. And he goes, Matt, I am the editor at Slash Film. I am the one who approves pitches. I am the one who gives you work. And I'm telling you to your face, I love when you write for me, I want you to keep writing for me, and I will continue to pay you to write for me. And I'm like, all right, fine. <laughs> it's like, I feel a little better about it now. But that's also such an editor response. Like, and yeah. on
2: one hand, I completely agree with his argument, because you should be trying to impress him. He's the one who's cutting you a check, right? And yet, I, I don't know, like, I'm not satisfied. Like, I, I mean, don't get me wrong. I love to get paid to write. I don't think people should pay or I don't think people should write for free. That actually always irks me unless it's like you're trying to get your foot in the door and you don't know any other way. But like Mm -hmm. if you feel good about your writing, you should start to make an argument for getting paid for it or seeking out places that pay because it is an art form and it is labor and people should get paid for that. But at the end of the day, like I don't write to get paid. I appreciate it. But I write because I need to do it. Like I need to be, I need that output.
0: That's no, that's exactly it. Like you've captured kind of the, the, the uh, paradox of writing is like, I will never write for free, but I also totally would. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, Uh I would do this anyways, but you have to pay
2: me. Yeah. Yep.
0: Huh? Okay. So we, we had a, we had a fun little tangent there. <laughs> okay.
2: I'm Apparently, sorry.
0: I no, you, <laughs> you're good. You're good. Apparently that was something we all needed to get off our chest. But I, uh, Joe, I want to talk, I want to talk about you before we talk okay. about the movie. I want to talk about you because I've been lucky enough to know you since the last fantastic Fest. Uh We've, you know, gotten to get your taste in film and understand um, a little bit why, again, I made that crack at the beginning, but why Joe and Matt, Tracy and Don, Donato kind of works. But I don't actually know. <laughs> I don't know your your history, your your background prior to horror, queers, and, and the writing that you've done for some of the sites that I am familiar with now. So, what was like? Talk to me about the beginning. You know, you your early days as a as a horror fan or somebody who was introduced to horror. What did that look like?
2: Oh, okay, this is like an origin tale. I love so, it. So, uh, the story that I typically tend to tell. Ooh, the story that I typically tend to tell when I'm asked this question is: I blame my sister for being a bad babysitter. That's how I got into horror films. So my parents would leave me in her capable hands, and if she wasn't chasing me around the house with a knife, she was showing me Clive Barker double bills. So my horror origins are from uh, Candyman and Hellraiser. That was my first double bill when I was about eleven, and it. It did set the stage for the kinds of films that i tend to enjoy which are a little bit i hesitate to say smarter because there's something to be said (laughs) for dumb stupid horror films like it doesn't diminish their capacity for scaring you or being enjoyable but i've always liked films that have pushed the envelope and not been afraid to be smart about the way they approach scares and I definitely credit Clyde Barker for giving me that taste at an early age. So I've come to look for it or even expect it in certain types of horror films as a result.
0: So when you, you started with Clyde Barker, um, those couple of films, like, did you find yourself talking about kind of the, this murder thing? Like, where, where were the next couple of movies? Like, what when you stopped just watching what your sister showed you and you found yourself seeking stuff out on your own, you know, what were you gravitating towards and where were you finding the stuff? Was it just like VHS video store copies or did you have a network of friends that were giving you stuff to watch too?
2: Uh, so I, I wasn't raised religious and my parents were fairly liberal. So it wasn't an issue to watch different kinds of things. Like my parents were actually pretty culturally open, like almost to, to the point of being hippies where they would say like, yeah, we really want you to have a wide range of experiences. Now, that didn't always mean violence and sex, though. Like, they wanted me to be educated, but they didn't necessarily want me to be down in the the drudges, Mm quote-unquote. But uh, we did rent a lot of movies, and there was a great local, not even like a chain, but they had a special section for horror. Like, you had to cross a moat, and they had different lighting, and they had all-year-round horror decorations that were out so I spent a lot of time in there just looking at box art for different types of films. And of course, some of them were just far too salacious for my parents' liking. So there were a lot of films that I know exclusively based off the cover, but I hadn't seen them until I was probably in my twenties or maybe even thirties, which is a very really weird experience because as everyone knows, box art looks nothing like what the actual movie is, particularly if you're looking at films from the eighties, which a lot of these VHS were. But um, to circle back to where do you go after a Clyde Barker devil bill? The funny mm-hmm. thing is that this was in the mid nineties, which is historically considered not one of the better periods for horror. So I watched, I can't even remember most of the things that I was watching, like we watched a lot of creature features. I remember watching Deep Rising and Anaconda and The Relic a million times on VHS. But then the next kind of seminal moment is really the teen slasher cycle, like the second boom that occurred after Scream. So it's like Scream and then at that point, every single teen slasher that came out in the theaters opening weekend, every weekend.
1: No, oh, I, I mean, that makes perfect sense. Actually, I want to jump back on one quick thing. You said a moat um, at some point. You had to cross a <laughs> moat, and I want to know if that was a joke or if that
2: was serious. It was a legitimate moat. There was no water running underneath it, but it was like the horror section was in a little, it was probably the size of a porta potty, but it was rounded like a castle terrace. And then there was a little moat that you had to take from the regular part of the store to get over into that horror section. And then you were just surrounded by VHS tapes from like floor to ceiling of horror.
1: That is like the perfect way to lure children into becoming horror fans. Like, to oh, be perfectly honest, like, oh, yeah, I want to go across the moat. What's over there? What, horror films? Uh, it was either sexual slavery or horror
2: films. And I'm really glad that they didn't have an adults only section.
1: <laughs> right. It's a 50-50 toss up. Or you're, are, you, are you glad? I don't know. We don't know at this point. I mean, who would I be otherwise? <laughs> a veritable porn raider. I don't know. You could be writing about <laughs> porn reviews right now.
2: You don't know what I do in my moonlighting. That's very true. this is true
0: well let me let me use that um, as an incredibly natural transition to ask about your other writing, which is to say, Joe, how did you get into uh, how did you get into film criticism and podcasting? How did you make that leap from a horror fan uh, to somebody who was like, oh, like I there is a career for me in this industry
2: well the the funny thing is that it does harken back to the conversation we had before, which is this idea that there's something within a lot of people who write about films that, You just want to have that conversation so when i was doing my master's degree i befriended another girl in the program and she was having the same issues as me where we were watching all this great stuff and we couldn't find anyone to engage with us like we had very different tastes than a lot of other people so we decided actually to start a tv blog which exists to this day it's actually my I transitioned it over into my personal website, but for the longest time, we actually used it as an outlet to write about pretty much anything that we liked on television. So we would do weekly recaps of a bunch of different shows. At one point we grew it out so that we had friends who were writing for it and even people I didn't know. And it, it was great, but it never got any kind of traction. So it was very much a writing into the void and then Over time, as I got a little bit older, I moved to Toronto, um, which is a really big city in Canada. It's Canada's largest city. And, of course, we've got the Toronto International Film Festival here. So it was an opportunity to pitch myself to various outlets to say, do you have someone providing TIFF coverage for you? So that's how I actually got in with Bloody Disgusting, which is the place that gave me my big break. And, I mean, as far as breaks go, it's a pretty fucking great place to get a break at and this would have been back in I think 2015 maybe 2016 but it started with just festival coverage and it grew to include different kinds of articles and reviews when they couldn't find other people to cover it off and then eventually that's how I met Trace virtually because we only actually met last year at Fantastic Fest but I noticed that he was uh, including Queer elements into some of his reviews. And it seemed like nobody else on the site was acknowledging that. So I thought, okay, here's another queer writer. So i reached out to him and said hey you know we should try to do a project together and from that horror queers was born so we started to do a series of articles once a month sometimes twice a month and we would just write back and forth and the only connection that we had was actually that we are queer and we seem to enjoy the same kinds of films and over time that grew into a pretty great friendship Where quite a lot like siblings and i love the fact that you compared yourselves uh to us because it's very much like one is very loud and outgoing and opinionated and the other one is maybe a little bit more reserved but it's a really good balance of personalities and that's part of the appeal i think to like why people engage with our respective shows, because they like the dynamic. They like some of the petty infighting, but also the fact that you compliment each other in terms of challenging each other and pushing each other to, to take the conversation further and to explore outside of the boundaries that you might have said, mm, I'm good, I don't need to explore this film.
1: I'm fine. Yeah, I totally would hope that, you know, Matt Monagle would stop being so loud and obnoxious and outgoing at times, but, you know, it just gets real aggressive. You know, right? I was actually- I never shuts
0: up. I was going to jump in here and say, normally I'd say something flippant, but it's been a week already, and and I really valued what Joe had to say, and I agree with it. But Donato, you stuck on my moment. You you fucking ruined it. I do,
1: because that's what I do. And also, Joe, thank you for explaining what Toronto is. Really, really needed that one. (laughs) Toronto. Toronto.
0: Well, I
2: do feel the need to constantly explain how Canada works to people, because everyone either thinks that we're just the country up north, or that we regularly interact with polar bears and live in igloos and you know have all of these other ridiculous connotations about coldness so
1: i guess that that is true because i've had the benefit of going to toronto montreal uh xyz like and such so i I, that is a good point i have had more experience with our neighbors to the north than others might have but yes (laughs) toronto is quite a big city and Mm -hmm. you should go there but also go to montreal first i think i have a hundred percent go to montreal first
0: Yeah, as somebody who grew up in Alaska, you know, I my my formative years were spent trying to cash Canadian quarters or put Canadian quarters in the vending machines that didn't accept them. So uh, the worst. I have a co- complicated relationship with old with old Canada. There, God damn it, I just wanted my
1: Butterfinger. <laughs> I just want universal right. health care. <laughs> well, God, all right, I'm not going to lie; it's a selling
2: feature.
0: Getting getting heavy again, Donato. And speaking of heavy, it is time to talk about this week's movie, which is uh, which is both fun. Um, and a little twisted, I'm glad, I'm very glad Joe brought up Clive Barker, cause that's going to be a subject of much conversation in a second. So when we come back, we're going to talk about the nameless stick with us. You know, Matthew Donato, my co-host and friend, uh, we really couldn't do what we're doing here at Certified Forgotten without the support of our patrons. And every episode, we just want to take a moment and say thank you by letting them tell you what to say. So what do we have for, our, for ourselves this week, Matt?
1: For ourselves this week, we have, let's start with Stephasaurus Rex, aka Steph Garcia, aka My first Brooklyn ball partner on the team Ski Rassic Park, who has so generously donated to our Patreon end, has given me this message to read aloud to our peoples. Armageddon, the flawless 1999 Michael Bay classic, is a cinematic masterpiece. In my professional opinion, it is hands down the best movie ever made. I am not being paid to say this, and I think the animal cracker scene is the most romantic movie scene of all time. End quote
0: oh donato i first of all i had no idea how you felt about armageddon so it's nice to get that you know just air that between the two of us but all joking aside armageddon is in the criterion collection so you're not too far off the
1: mark there i i hate that i have to read it as myself and it's just now canon (laughs) like i can't get around that it's now just out there so thanks staff all right what else like the next one's got to be easier on you the next one is much easier on me. It is from our metal loving Patreon supporter, Corey M, who has asked me to read the following lyrics. Leave me alone. Don't want your promises no more because rock and roll is my religion and my law. Won't ever change. May think it's strange. You can't kill rock and roll. It's here to stay. As said by Mr. Ozzy Osbourne from You Can't Kill Rock and Roll. I like that. I, more of our patrons should have you read song lyrics. That's a good.
0: That's a good twist on this.
1: We, uh, we do share the common bond of loving our metal and loving especially that era of metal. So I'm down to read whatever metal from this kind of period they can come up with.
0: All right, there you go, listeners. If you want Matt Donato to read his favorite metal songs or the new track from P.O.D., all you got to do is donate a little bit.
1: Fuck that song. <laughs>
0: well, let's get right back into it. All right. Welcome back. So this week on the show, we're going to be talking about The Nameless, which is a 1999 Spanish uh, sort of ghost story, but not really sort of cult film, but a lot of really. It is directed by Jaime Balaguerro, who you might know, horror fans might know, as the creator of the Rex series, um, who had involvement throughout the rest of the franchise and has made several other horror films in Spain. Uh, It is a film about a young, uh, not so young anymore, but a mother whose daughter is taken from her at a young age. Um, They receive reports from the police that says that this girl has died and she moves on with her life. The film skips forward. Five years later, she gets a phone call from her daughter that says, I'm still alive. Mom, come save me. And she and the ex-cop who originally investigated the case form a partnership to investigate the disappearance of the girl all over again and the organization, the secret organization that might have had something to do with her fake death. Uh, It is a film that bears striking resemblance to the filmmaker and author that we talked about earlier. So I want to kick it off by asking Joe. um, Actually, I'm going to say this because this is based on uh, a, a book by Ramsay Campbell who's a a British horror novelist and somebody that was a big influence for Barker. Have you read have you read the Nameless Joe? Have you read the the story that or the book this is based on?
2: So tragically I haven't. Hmm. Um it yeah, it's one of those things where I'm constantly fascinated by national cinemas who end up adapting crime or horror novels from another country. Like we just covered The Handmaiden on horror queers. And that's also adapted from a British novelist. And then it it becomes appropriated into a culture that is completely different from it, but still manages to retain a lot of the characteristics. So I was kind of struck by the fact that The Nameless doesn't at all feel like a British crime novel. And yet you can completely understand that there's certain things like when you look at the novel, it's set in certain years, it was published in certain years, and it brings in those components in the finished film.
0: Yeah. So let me, I, I know that, I know you do your research. Um, so I want to give you a chance to show that off a little bit. And I want to start by saying for people that might not be as well-versed in Spanish horror, they might know Japanese horror of the, you know, early 20th century, 21st century. God, what time, what year is it? They might be familiar with New French Extremity, but they kind, you know, they've heard of Del Toro's work in Spain and they're a little up in the air about what Spanish horror looked like in the 2010s. Kind of like add some context there for that. What is where does this film exist and where does the Spanish horror industry exist as compared to some of the other national cinemas?
2: Okay. So that is super fascinating because anybody who has studied national cinema and I know that you you've had a couple of different guests on who have brought in some of that nationalistic flavor it's always a fascinating piece, right? Because a lot of the creative decisions that determine the types of films that get made are based off of national funding. So unlike an American context where you have a studio who gets to make financial decisions in a national cinema, you often have a government or an arts council who gets to decide what kinds of content gets made. And that's very much the case in Spain. So in, um, Spain went through a very heavy period of horror production in the sixties through to the mid seventies, and then it stops. And there were a couple of different reasons for that, but the the main reason that you need to know is that the government changed. So, uh, Basically, we we enter what's called Les miro, which is a film legislation that's established by the socialist government in 1983, and they decided that they didn't want to make genre-specific films anymore. They didn't want to make low-budget, gory, tasteless, sensationalistic films. So they wanted to focus on what they deemed high-quality films based mainly on literary or historical sources. (laughs) So um so obviously what you end up with is a bunch of kind of stale dramas and period pieces and so on. And then of course, what happens is in the nineties as technology begins to change and it becomes easier to make films, but also you start to see the expansion of international films. So films can really make an impact if you can distribute them out from your home country across the world. And Spain starts to realize not just with the changing of the government and a, a different taste, but they realize that there's this new breed, a new generation of filmmakers who are on the rise. And it's tied into the equivalent of like a Rumor or a Fangoria fanzine that likes exploitation films, that likes horror films. And a lot of the people who are working on those magazines begin to influence culture. So we start to get a new horror boom that occurs in the back half of the 90s, of which The Nameless falls sort of squarely into that. And really, it, it falls into a couple of different directions. So ironically, Spain experienced their own scream like copycat craze where they had a bunch of teen slasher films that apparently were not all that good. Uh, they had a bunch of different kinds of ghost films. And then they also had these kinds of films which play up the perversion, the sadism, and the darker, more twisted things.
0: Joe's very smart. I like having Joe on the show.
2: It doesn't hurt that I actually found a Spanish horror (laughs) cinema book that I was like, oh my God, there's an entire chapter on uh, Baguero's filmography. That's nice.
1: Yeah, I'd be like, y'all seen The Orphanage? That's Spanish horror, (laughs) right?
2: (laughs) It 100% is. And the the orphanage is the byproduct of this change in temper in terms of the kinds of films that they want to produce. So what happens is you start to see people like um, Aminabar and Del Toro starting to come in and they start raising and amplifying the voices of some of these emerging filmmakers. And you also get the synthesis of not quite studio structures, but like cooperatives that get a little bit more more money so they can make better films. I'm putting better in quotation marks, but they look better, they have better special effects. And then they can start to distribute them to international film festivals to create buzz so that they can drum up DVD and Blu-ray sales.
1: Yeah, and I think my favorite example of like one of those filmmakers that's really taken uh, the Spanish sensibilities and has been able to number one, still have fun with it in every film he's made throughout his catalog, but also get that acclaim where, this director is not Del Toro. He's not. I, I don't think he's as well known, obviously, but at least in the horror community, for me, I mean, like Alex de la Iglesia, everything I watch by him between like Witching and Bitching, uh, The Last Circus, like Going uh, Day of the Beast, it's so instinctually his kind of filmmaking, and it's something that he couldn't get away with making stateside. I would say it's a very international feel. It gets wild. It takes wild swings, but it's still a large value production, and it has these multi million dollar budgets that again stateside horror would at the time especially would not be giving them so i i do agree that there's a lot of things that come out of spanish cinema and it, it may have taken a little bit to get there and it may have had its road bumps but now that we're there i, I love that they have that kind of freedom and de la Inglésia, i think is really a, like one of the paramount filmmakers that i i wish more people would talk about stateside at least not people that i know in a daily circle like where <laughs> we would all know who he is
2: Yeah, I feel bad. I've heard so much about Witching and Bitching, and I still haven't seen it.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, and if you haven't, have you seen any of his other stuff? I I haven't. I've heard the name Bandy Durant, of course. Yeah, I was gonna say like there's witching and bitching. It's very good. Don't get me wrong. I have a lot of fun with it. But I would start with something like uh, Day of the Beast. uh, I think one of his earlier things where it's just so integrally like it's a Christmas horror film that involves like a metalhead, a priest, like a TV exorcist. Like, it's crazy. It's wild. And it's a film we could talk about hopefully maybe another time. But um, yeah, I mean, again, that kind of international filmmaking And it's funny to watch something like The Nameless being on the early end of that bump, I guess I would say, where, you know, you referenced before, this is a late 90s film, early 2000s, and it very much kind of feels like that too. The procedural beats to it are very procedural. It doesn't get as crazy until the end, I would say. But the one thing that struck me, and I apologize, Monagal, if I'm diverting the conversation here, but as you said, uh, basically, Mr. Belaguero co-created the REC franchise with uh, Mr. Paco Plaza mm-hmm. and REC is very, or rec, however you pronounce it, you know, where somebody found footage film where the camera goes into a quarantined building. It's quarantined in there with it. We've all seen it. If you haven't watch it, it's lovely. But I'm very curious to know if Mr. Balaguero took the ideas of The Nameless and brought them to uh, REC because Both films can almost be connected where the nameless could almost be an early iteration of REC in the sense that they both deal with a religious villain, I guess we'll call it cult or like, you know, however you want to call it in REC. It's just straight up religion, straight up Christianity, Mm -hmm. uh, playing around with exorcisms and things of that nature. But in both films, it's so interesting to see that children are used as a vessel for evil by the church. And it's such a specific, specific plot point to hone in on. And yet they're both almost connected in the way they do it. So the ties to me were so much more in that regard than I was expecting. And again, I would really love to read back and see if the Nameless had anything to play in uh, REC's creation later on, because I would not be surprised uh, if they took directly from the Nameless and were like, but what if we did this in a quarantine setting in a found footage recording device?
2: Hmm. Well, there's even scenes in this film where, when you see, um, ah, shoot, what's her main name? Uh, our main actress Claudia, or sorry, the main character Claudia. There's a couple of scenes that are set inside her apartment building, or where she's coming up the stairs and she has a scare, you know, with the elevator, or she's trying to desperately get inside her door and she gets accosted by a man, and it looks. I mean, visually, I think a lot of the apartment complexes in Spain, particularly in high-density areas, they probably all kind of look like this, but it feels very much like a precursor to something that you would see in Rec, where there's a certain mundane banality to the scare, like it's literally just a woman trying to get into her apartment, and yet it it feels like that precursor to what we're going to see in just eight years, right?
1: Yeah, and it's funny you mentioned that because in that apartment scene, exactly what you're saying, when she's trying to get in the door, and you can see the door in full view of her apartment. I had a moment where I'm like, that looks exactly like one of the doors in the complex in REC. Yeah. Uh, the only thing that took me away from it is you have the elevator in the, uh, the Nameless building. Mm-hmm. So in, in REC, there was no clear elevator you could see there. So I don't think they had one. So that was the one thing that threw me off. But I had that immediate thought that it's, again, it's so tied and it's so integral that I I was like, are are they connected somehow? Even,
2: mm-hmm. yeah, and I do think that you're on the right track because if you look at Belaguara's, uh filmography, he is obsessed with certain kinds of themes and ideologies. And I'm gonna I'm gonna give credit to a genre critic from Spain, Tony. Sorry, I'm gonna try that again, Tonio Alacar and he he kind of identifies Belaguaro's uh his his thematic interest so he says he has a physical and psychological he's interested in physical and psychological torture in particular that of children on investigation into pure evil and the horrors of the past, as well as a dark vision of human existence, all convened through recurrent visual imagery involving old photographs, medical paraphernalia, the presence of bodily fluids and water, and that's all playing into the cinematography and editing style.
0: Yeah, and I think to to the point that that both of you are making, if, if I can throw this out here real quick. I mean... One of the things that's very, it seems integral to to both of those films, but also, Joe, to your point about national cinema, I mean, Spain is an incredibly, not just Christian, but an incredibly Roman Catholic country. Mm -hmm. Um, The country is, as of, I think, two years ago, 2009, 19, sorry, is the statistic that I'm looking at, it is 68.9% Roman Catholic, and that's not Christian, that's 68.9% one specific denomination of one specific faith. And, you know, as somebody who grew up in a Roman Catholic environment, as somebody who was both an active Catholic and a blossoming horror fan at the same time, watching the movies like Wreck and The Nameless and understanding how the themes of guilt and history and condemnation yeah. and predestination like it, it, that kind of shit can swirl real mean in your head. And it doesn't surprise me at all to find these are fertile grounds for Spanish filmmakers to be looking at because it makes all you know, like it is. You know, horror and Christianity or Catholicism in particular are two sides of the same coin. And it's a Mm -hmm. lot of fun to delve in those themes.
2: But it's almost shocking, too, right? Because I feel like it's done really subtly here. Like Mm -hmm. you could watch this film and think that it's a crime procedural with cult elements and a slightly complicated slash murky narrative structure that presents us with three protagonists in the back half of the film like you could really easily miss the idea that the reason that claudia is so haunted is in part not just because her marriage broke up and because her kid was killed but because she is obviously so steeply like she's she's wallowing in this guilt right Mm -hmm. and think it'd be easy to to miss the more subtle nuances that the film is giving you like you know she does wear a cross but it's we get one scene in a church and it doesn't involve her and yet there's so much about this character we are just like oh yeah she's deeply religious this is informed by religiousness and practices like the cult itself isn't even religious and yet there's all of these connotations that come through where if you're looking for them you can start to pick them up
0: right and it is—it's it, interesting that you know, the the idea of this movie and where it exists in national cinema and horror's progression of cinema in general. I mean, as I was watching this, I did sort of feel like this is this is almost a Rosetta Stone for two thousands horror because mm-hmm. it, it it adopts a lot of the not quite horror influences of filmmakers, American filmmakers like David Fincher, who would influence a lot of people in other genres and other places, but. It does pull in some of the, like, you know, Ringu came out in 1998 and it has elements of that retro VHS, um, you know, editing and kind of like the, some of the, the different visual distortions that would become pretty commonplace over the next 10 years. It deals with these ideas of national cinema and national identity, but it also is sort of like a blend of, as you were saying, police procedural and a little bit more of a straightforward crime thriller. So like there are all these, it feels like all of these different paths kind of diverged into the nameless and it sort of set the template for how other countries would get national popularity get international acclaim for horror going forward. And this sort of like serves as a distillation of what works and doesn't work for international horror audiences.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And the the funny thing is, is that like, I don't think that this film is well known, but it was a huge hit at the time. Like not only did it launch um, Belagaro's career, but like it's considered one of the defining films of this particular time period. Like it's him and it's also m and Bar with uh, Thesis or Thesis. Like, those are kind of two of the, the big defining ones, as well as uh, De La Iglesia. So, like, in, in the annals of Spanish horror cinema, like, these are, the, these are the guys to watch, essentially. And yet The Nameless is a horror film that I feel like no one really knows or acknowledges. Like, if you say, oh, it's the guy who did Wreck,
1: then they know. Yeah, I mean, for me, I had no idea. But the funny part is, for some reason, when you said the nameless, I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. But then when I saw the Spanish language poster that said Los Sin Nombre, for some reason that triggered something. And I'm like, where have I seen this before? So I I think the issue is, and we can get to it later, but it's just a matter of reach. Because at the time, you know, as you know, we couldn't find it. We could barely find it ourselves. Mm -hmm. So if we could barely find it now in this great period of distribution, I'm sure it was even harder st- to find it stateside uh, when it came out in 2000. So I, that is the unfortunate byproduct. But I, I think, you know, in looking at the film, what you said before, it, it's a precursor for what would and wouldn't work for international audiences and in horror. It's interesting to me because I, that's how I kind of feel about the movie a little bit, too. Because there are elements that really work for me and there are elements that don't work for me. Mm -hmm. Um, I I feel like it leans a little too heavily into the procedural aspect and plays down the malevolence of the horror at points where I know it might not have been able to go full gore effect and things of that nature. And not that we always need it. But we have some pretty key characters or, you know, at least one key character in my mind who dies off camera at a pretty pivotal moment Mm -hmm. in the way that I kind of forgot they were even there in the, like in that area at that point. I'm like, wait, where'd this character go? And you just have to assume they're dead. So I think there are times where, yes, you get the Ringu elements where a main character is having flashbacks on this snuff video kind of fuzz. And at the same time, it does things where it doesn't fully commit to the horror of the scenario by being like, Oh, here's a character in peril. Oh wait, let's just cut away and just forget about him. Yeah.
2: Oh yeah. Um, I mean, I think if you look at the way that people talk about Bella filmography he's often recognized for his visual capacity, right? Like he makes some really striking imagery, things that stick with you. And I think that's where the comparisons to Fincher come from, because you look at this and you look at seven and you can see the direct correlation. Uh Um, But in terms of narrative, he often often, gets knocked for that so the narratives are either complicated or they meander or they don't spend enough time with character and I think if you go into the nameless thinking okay I'm gonna watch this woman who is you know she's just struck down by grief over the death of her daughter even five years later and I'm gonna watch her you know kind of like in Ringu I'm going to watch her try to save her daughter I'm going to watch her go on this investigative journey and she's going to uncover the truth and it's going to be really cathartic. And then all of a sudden we've got this cop. Okay, sure. Yes, I can accept that. because <laughs> We need a cop to open doors and to, you know, make phone calls and get us into prisons and so on fine. And then at almost the halfway point of this film, we get a parapsychology reporter slash photographer And all of a sudden, he's a main character, too, and he comes to dominate the narrative. And it, I mean, this is one of the marvels of looking at films from different countries, right? Like, you guys have talked about a number of different Japanese films, and they take a different approach to pacing, But from our North American context, when we watch something like The Nameless, which should remind us of these straightforward crime procedurals, and then we get to this guy, we're like, wait, no, what are you doing? This is one protagonist too many. We don't need this guy in here. And what is, oh, he's just dead. Okay.
1: Yeah. And then also, don't forget Tony, the douchebag ex-boyfriend, or, you know, ex-partner, we'll call it, who just keeps popping up at random times. You're kind of like, oh, right, she got she divorced and then that and then tony all right whatever mm-hmm. yeah
0: yeah but it wouldn't be a good like somebody has to get their skin peeled back for this to really yeah. be to have that like that good clive barker shit so that's right. what to, tony's there to get to get a little bit of a little bit of the old throat peeling
2: i mean don't get me wrong i love a murder tableau and the, the hannibal fan and me looked at this and said yes prop him up on a chair and then just flay
1: that skin a little bit Oh, it's fantastic. Do not get me wrong on that. But I think it just adds another level of complexity to that. Not issue, but it is a challenge trying to keep these characters apart. Because then, again, you have, like, there's other cops in the first intro scene, and then they come back into the mix only randomly. And there's a lot of jumbling around and a lot of connecting of the dots that might, again, might not be expected in a procedural that should seem pretty straightforward. Um, And then also, you know, I I do kind of think the cult angle is subdued in a way that I would have loved to see a little more out of. I, I I'm not saying the nameless is on unacom- a, it's not unacom- like unaccomplished or I'm not saying the nameless isn't good at what it does, <laughs> but at the stage time, if it had that De La Inglacia spin where we're getting a little more of the malevolence from the cult and we're getting a little bit more of the uh, Tristiana Majuros effect from REC versus a, a pretty simplistic representation of a quote unquote like possessed girl I don't even know what to call her at the end it, <laughs> it would have elevated the film a little more where we would have felt the genre aspects felt the horror of it and maybe gotten over that narrative hump a little bit because we're in a world that's otherwise vivacious and lively with this hellish spirit
0: yeah. well Donato, let me let me i'll just I'll frame it like this so that our audience who hasn't seen it and may not want to watch it Uh, understand this is this is the most subdued nazi death body mutilation cult film you will ever ever watch these are like the most chill nazi experimenters i've ever seen in a movie i mean compare this to something like frankenstein's army and you're like Oh, so like apparently these were like the, the, one, the, the ones that were, you know, the nice Nazis, the ones that were experimenting, but they weren't trying to make a big deal out of it. So when they introduce that plot point and you're thinking like, oh, all right, like every movie with like Nazi experiments and, and you know, satanic rituals is all right by me. It is just by the nature of that setup. It is going to be disappointing when, when they're just sort of like, you know, hey, we took over a hotel.
1: Yeah. And we just had Overlord too. It's like, we just had Overlord. Like (laughs) we just had all these experimentation films that go wild and crazy. And I just wanted a little more of that. I wanted a little more of it and I want a little more tightness. If you're not going to give us that. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it's
2: a little bit shocking. So my background with this film is I watched this in a Spanish cinema class in university, and it was taught by a faculty member who was desperately trying to convey that One of the challenges of a national cinema is that you don't often see anything except its biggest import. So if it's not going to be an Oscar nominee or if it's not going to be a huge breakout on the film festival circuit, you're probably not going to see the majority of a country's output. So what the purpose of the course was to shine a light on a bunch of different genres and smaller films that might be challenging to find, such as The Nameless. And this film was the most divisive film in that entire class. Like we watched a bunch of different types of movies, but we watched a couple of horror films and people fell into two camps with this film. So they either hated it abhorrently, like they just absolutely could not stand this movie. And the majority of that response was due to the final scene. And then the other element was liked it tepidly, but wished that there had been more cult stuff. (laughs) So the Santini stuff, which is the cultist that, you know, very obviously drawn a little bit of Hannibal Lecter flavor, he's got a weird skin disease that makes him visually compelling. And he's got some weird quirks. But he doesn't appear until very late in the film. He's he's a man of myth and rumor for the large part of the first half. And then when you finally get to see him, you're like, okay, cool, this is payoff, we're going to get a lot of stuff. And you basically get a scene with him. And that's it, and it's yeah, a
0: really a good speech about termites and tables. But that's about right. as far as that goes.
1: <laughs> oh, that that heavy foreshadowing, though. <laughs> so for me, I think about the way that it's played as a procedural, and I think about the way that it's played from the uh, detective sleuthing aspect, and I, I, it draws me to another film. And I, I, the connection's going to be a little iffy, so I, I, I apologize, but. Um I saw this movie called The Treatment which is a Belgian film by a director Hans Herbots off a Mo Hayder novel and it is a very I'm going to say it's a more horrific procedural film that deals with you know again children and things of that angle mm-hmm. but it's rooted in reality it's rooted in everyday life so there's no crazy cult angle or there's no crazy whatever you want to call it possession whatever you want to get into And yet the treatment leaves me more shaken. It leaves me more terrified. And I felt, you know, more genre appeal from something that was just more effectively done than, um, you know, looking back at The Nameless, where they try to get cute with a bunch of things, but kind of come up short. Um, And like, I think that maybe that's an unfair comparison to make, but like that was it was in my head the whole time kind of watching The Nameless, having seen better procedural films that blend in that genre element however they can and do it with way more effective just disgust I guess I would say
2: mm-hmm. well this film doesn't tend to lean into graphic sequences of horror right like we don't really have yeah. a very many set pieces what we do see of the experiments I think Monica you said you know it's It's actually not that bad if you're thinking about nazi experimentation which is just the most ridiculous thing i'm gonna say today and yet yeah like it it's all in there and it's ostentatious in the way that you can see there's a certain attempt to push buttons and to be risque and avant-garde and yet i don't know maybe that just speaks to who we are as horror fans that this feels a little bit tame. Like, yeah, man, we've seen some of this shit before. You're going to have to do a bit better. Well,
0: I, th- I think that, you know, as I was watching this, I kept thinking about Barker. And um, Joe, I, you know Barker better than me, so you can speak to this as well. But, you know, one of the things that, that I really love about him and in, in his books, Books of Blood, and the, the films that he made is that transformative element, the ecstasy and the leaving your own self behind and the metamorphosis and the, just like the, the goopiness uh, that comes kind of along with that. And I think that I think that the the things that the the images that are so striking in his work are those moments of explicitness where people walk through the veil and you know they give themselves over to whatever entity, whatever force, whatever belief system that they're allowing to transform their physical self. And this this does feel like um, this does sort of feel like what would happen if you asked. It's a, it's a lazy comparison but if you ask David Fincher to make a Clive Barker story it would be something that leans into the elements that are a bit more mass appeal leans into the elements that are procedural and you know intimidating and frightening and scary you know stuff that'll images and stuff that'll really stick with you but it doesn't it doesn't have those Baskin moments right like it doesn't go full bore and it doesn't show the transformation and the ecstasy and the movie actually stops right before um what could have been its most explicit moment so that to me is is kind of the interesting thing is it is it's it's not correct to say that it's out of his depth i think it's more correct to say that it doesn't have it is drawn to different parts of the same thing it is drawn to different elements of what another film might filmmaker might take and really like push 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 the explicit nature of it
1: well, and that's that's how we got Deliver Us from Evil, basically from uh, Scott Derrickson. I mean, that's I, I think to me that's the closest comparison that we can make because Deliver Us from Evil is a straight up cop procedural with exorcism and religious uh, horror in it, and it leans more into the horror. And I don't that's an, it's the funny thing to say because I don't know if Deliver Us from Evil benefits from such a heavy lean into the horror. I think it does a disservice to the other. So I think it's just showing how how thin a line or how thin a margin it is for any kind of subgenre film to try and blend a cop pr- procedural with a horror fantasy element because one is so rooted in fact and law and you know justice whatever you want to call it and the other is rooted in the crazy and the wild and the unbelievable and getting those two to gel together it's such a formula that t- it's not easy to crack No, and
2: as someone who literally just watched the back half of the Hellraiser franchise, which kind of synthesizes both of your arguments, because those back half films are almost entirely driven by police or investigative style procedural pieces, and they fundamentally misunderstand the appeal of Barker's sadism and interest in transition that makes those first couple of films so meaningful. And, you know, I I think what we're seeing here is a complex negotiation. And particularly because this is a Spanish film and it's drawing from that Roman Catholic tradition, you know, we're seeing this collage of different types of genres that aren't quite coalescing. So it feels like The Nameless ends up becoming like four different horror films and some of them are very effective or they're very striking, but the film as a whole doesn't come together in any kind of synthesis because they are also at odds with one another.
0: Well, let me, let me ask both of you um, on that point, something that I, that I'm curious about, you know, one of the last questions we'll talk about today, how much credit should we give a movie when it commits and it's like its end? Right. And I don't want to spoil um, I don't want to spoil the name and title of this, but there was a film that made the rounds at Fantastic Fest last year that really nailed the ending. And it was the only thing that anybody who saw it could talk about is how well it nailed the ending. Like, how much do we judge films like this by how much they nailed the ending? Like a lot of these movies, a lot of horror, especially the hybrids, Joe, like the the, the horror other thing movies that really save their biggest swings until the, you know, the last 10, 15 minutes. Should we is is that something where a good last fifteen minutes in your eyes as a horror fan can make up for a, something that doesn't quite find its footing until then? If it really nails the big, you know, bloody set pieces at the end, does that make up for kind of the meandering it might take to get there?
2: Hmm. It, it's fascinating that you say that. I feel like I know which film you're talking about, but yes, we don't need to specifically reference <laughs> that. Um, I think for me, the power of this film. Is entirely in its climax, and I mean that—that that seems like a bit of an obvious statement because so many horror films build to something in the climax where it's that final confrontation. But in this film, in particular, that's when the investigation and the cop drama, the police procedural, falls away, and we return to Claudia and her desperate search for her daughter, and the reveal of this film and. Do we, do we spoil the reveal? Do we? Oh
0: yeah. Go right
2: ahead. Okay. So the the reason that people in my class absolutely hated this is because it ends on such a note of defeated nihilism, right? Like you finally get reunited with this daughter. There were a whole bunch of people in the class who didn't actually think that the daughter was real, that she was either a ghost or she was being impersonated by somebody. And the reveal of course, is that she's actually been alive, but she's been groomed by the cult as this, this byproduct, almost like a vessel where she was never a real person. She was literally just born and groomed to become this person who is going to lead the way to, I don't know, some kind of new <laughs> sensation or some kind of revelation about life. And it's fascinating if you think about that, like this is what the cult was looking for. And I'm going to throw something out there that I, I'm interested to hear your responses to this, but it feels like an early precursor to Martyrs to me. It's a cult that has abducted women and groomed them to a certain degree to try to thin the veil between what comes next and to build on suffering into some kind of exquisite revelation. And I think that the reason that Martyrs works is because it actually is willing to spend the time on that horror and show us what it takes to get through that process because it's nightmarish the problem with the nameless is that it builds to that as a kind of capper before you can even process just how awful this is and what what claudia will go through the movie ends so it builds to something that is fantastic and I think it's very memorable in the way that it ends and is so shocking but because that's where it wants to leave you it doesn't feel like it's willing to do the hard work
1: Yeah, and I mean, like, that's a a finale that we're talking about that includes uh, matricide, possibly. Uh, It (laughs) includes child endangerment. It includes possibly suicide on camera. I'm saying possibly just, you know, to leave a little shadow of doubt for the people listening, but yeah, it fucking (laughs) includes all that. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, so it includes all these themes, we'll call them. Well, it includes all these horrific, nasty imagery, but it also doesn't go full force into them. And I, I think that kind of goes along with what you're saying Joe where it it teases this idea of something that's bigger that 100% could be a precursor to all these other films that do it in a better way and I think that then circles back around to how much how much credit are we willing to give an ending or a payoff that quote-unquote makes up for the entirety of the other film or the the preceding events and I think it's a loaded question because it's just film to film if you have something like The Witch in my eyes It's a slow, slow burn horror film. It's period based. It doesn't have a lot of quote unquote action until the end. And even that action is lesser on a level because it's still pioneer times and it's still it's colonial horror, pagan horror. But it gets crazy at the end for long enough for me where you've taken the time to set us up thematically and atmospherically. And then you deliver us what you promise in the title of The Witch. So for me, it works for me on that level. And there's like a Korean film, The Wailing and it's long as hell and it's like three parts where it goes straight up act one is a full cop procedural nothing more act two is this like comedy transition where it's like a bumbling kind of procedural but the horror comes into it and i mean that's like probably an hour and a half s worth of content right there and then we still have that act three so for me it's like yeah does that third act that goes full on korean horror makeup not makeup but you know what i'm trying to say like does it make the first two acts worthwhile to a horror fan and that's just always going to be the question for a payoff and in the movie that you're talking about monocle the payoff is two seconds we're talking about a film that is 80 something minutes and the payoff is two seconds worth of 82 minutes I think I don't do.
0: great fucking two seconds though, man.
2: <laughs> but also two seconds that you can deduce from the opening minutes of the film. Like, thank the, you. The films that Donato's talking about it. I mean, it's, it sounds flippant to say that there are twists and turns in both the witch and the wailing and to a certain extent, the nameless, but there's, there's something to be gained from the experience of going through that. Whereas this other nameless film not the nameless, nameless (laughs) from Fantastic Fest. Uh, The problem is is that it exists only for the ending, and that feels cheap at the end of the day. I mean, I, I appreciate that, yes, it's going to differ from fan to horror fan, but I think the problem with films that particularly rely on shock and two final seconds at the end, it... If you don't buy into that payoff, if you called that payoff early on, or if you feel like, you know what, that just colors my reaction to the entire rest of the film in a really negative light, because eh, then, I don't know, it feels like a lot of hard work and time that you're asking viewers to put in to that viewing experience that, I don't know,
1: it. it doesn't, yeah, I don't know. I mean, if you're going to make me do a bunch of homework, it better be for a reason. Like, like that's what it kind of comes down to a little bit. If you're going to make me do a lot more work in investing in your film, I want to be rewarded at the end of that. I mean, that's just what it comes down to. So if you're going to have a very laborious narrative for the first two acts, maybe two and a half acts, and then really punch home that payoff that delivers everything that I'm now wanting, you've built me up, you've put me on this pedestal. And the harder your film is to navigate, the more, the higher that pedestal is to reach. So in, the, ah, fuck it, it's St. Maud. I don't care at this point. My, <laughs> my, re, my review posted, uh, I, unfortunately, it got set back. It would have been out in April. But yeah, I mean, St. Maud for me, and this will be quick because we're running out of time here. But St. Maud again, 82 minutes. And it's, I agree with Joe 100%. You know where the end is going you know what this woman is going through and how she views life versus the voice in her head that she thinks is God. And I'm not spoiling anything for St. Maude. Don't worry. But what that last two seconds worth of content is, I deduce that minutes, maybe like honestly, like half an hour before it happens. And that's going to be your big final capper to me as someone who is more aligned with Joe. It sounds like that the work you put me through to get to that point, just a generic finding oneself through religion, but also getting lost in blind faith, didn't really do anything special. It kind of just retreaded the same waters we've seen. And then
2: I'm going to blow your mind because I thought we were talking about the Lodge.
1: Oh, wow. F. Oh, the Lodge is on Hulu, man. That, that's openly talkable. <laughs>
2: You
0: want, you want another really funny thing? I fucking love both of those movies. So like those would be on my, both of them would be on my top 10 list this year. So whatever you guys are saying, I disagree <laughs> with, but I respect your right to say it.
2: Oh, because I, I actually really enjoyed St. Maud, but I don't actually disagree with what you're saying, Donato. I can yeah, absolutely that's fair. see it. Um, maybe to bring it back to the nameless, to start to close things off. I think that this is a film that it can be said to suffer because it wants to have all of the flavors of ice cream without giving you anything except for a stomachache. So it it wants to have its police procedural. It wants to have its slight religious, somewhat ghost film. It wants to give you a cult, but it's also not willing to give you enough of any of those things. So if you like one, but not the others, you're spending a lot of time in a genre or a subgenre that you may not be infatuated with. And while I do, like the implications of the ending it leaves me wanting more like I I see the intentionality behind it and it just makes me say okay but now I want about 10 to 15 minutes more and maybe mm-hmm. cut out some of the stuff that preceded it
1: yeah I like the, I like the analogy of the uh all the flavors of ice cream because to me it's kind of like you've given me a dish that has chocolate peanut butter uh, probably lemon sorbet and bubble gum Mm-hmm. flavored and it's like it separately maybe I might like all those and maybe they all do taste good when you're just focusing on one of those but when the film tries to marry all those flavors together you're getting this jumble of like what the hell am I eating right now I can't really deduce any kind of flavor besides ow mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And I-, I think you know at the end of the podcast we usually like to talk about the relationship to these films why they were forgotten you know where their legacy might stand over time And something that I've been kind of hearing woven in and out of this conversation is The Nameless is a movie for people who like to make connections between movies. It is the sort of film that if your relationship to the horror genre is you want to see something that is a self-contained experience and enjoyable for that self-contained experience, you might not have the best time with it but if you are someone like the three of us to varying degrees who likes to see the connections between films of national cinema between films of filmmakers between movements and different styles of horror that kind of come in and out of fashion over the years this is the sort of movie that that does have some does have a lot of stuff going for it like that ending is really good and i love the ideas that they're playing with but it is perhaps more interesting when compared to the next film by the filmmaker or the previous film in the Spanish nationalist industry or you know, Japanese ghost films or French extremity. It exists sort of as that Rosetta Stone, and it's more interesting when you're using it to translate other films. And so it appeals to a subsection of horror fans that like history, that like those connections, and are going to be okay if they're only getting 70% of their dollar from this, if it means they're getting 110% of something else they watch later.
1: Yeah, I mean, just to give the listeners a little Rotten Tomatoes uh, recap, we're looking at five total reviews. It's right on that cusp that we uh, like to comment on and only one fresh four Rotten and all the Rotten do kind of go against or actually they agree with what you're saying that in a sense it's an interesting film to talk about after and it's an interesting film to relate to other films, to, and have a more, I guess, a discussion about the history of the film and a discussion about what it might have inspired but some of the blurbs, I mean, just really quickly, like uh, somebody said sporadically intriguing, but mostly dull. Like right there, there's a comment on the dullness. Uh, just how wildly the film flies off the rails is enough to set eyeballs spinning. That is if viewers' eyes are even open by that point. So oh, I do, it does oh, sound like the people, <laughs> yeah, yeah, That no, that was a 1.5 out of 4. That was a, I hated this, but I do think that speaks also to what Joe was saying about the class and the discussion he had in class and how it's extremely divisive because We're looking at four reviews that are saying, you know, two out of four, 1.5 out of four, four Mm -hmm. out of 10. Those are pretty low ratings. Oh, 1.5 out of five. Um, And then the one good review is, again, middling. It's only a three out of five that says a pretty slick thriller. That's it. That's the only thing it says about it. So that is basically summing up everything we've been saying in a way about The Nameless in that we've seen it before. We've seen it done. Uh, some are going to like it more than others it's a better discussion piece but at the end of the day I think I might align more with I I, I'm not saying it's a 1.5 out of 4 I'm not saying it's anything that bad because I do think there are impressive elements that are drawn from other parts of horror history at that point but I do think it's it's in that 2.5 range where I just wanted to see it do more. I wanted to see it take more risks. And again, we're saying that about a Nazi experimentation film that possibly is matricide and child suicide, Correct. but that's where we live. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's
2: fascinating to me. I, you know, this is a directorial debut, and I think in a certain regard, it 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 has that component to it. Like you can see that this is somebody who's getting their first big shot and they're really trying to swing for the fences by cramming a lot of stuff that they're probably really interested in into a single feature as opposed to having the experience level to know, hey, I should pull this back or maybe to trim or edit down a little bit. But uh, it is notable that this film was actually singled out in Fangoria's 200th issue and they, they basically dedicated that issue to the future of fear. And I think that's another good way to look at this film in context of everything else that you guys have said I think this is a film that gives you a sense of things to come, and I think that we can look at it as a bit of a genesis or an origin piece, as well as a a historical moment. Like, this is probably a good representation of what a national cinema is able to deliver in terms of genre cinema at this moment in time, but it speaks to maybe better things to come.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. If it was a compass that was going to point the direction of horror moving forward, there'd be a magnet by the compass and the freaking thing would be spinning everywhere going like, I don't know where we're going yet, but we're going to try this. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: I like it. I like where we ended up on that one. I think think that is, in a weird kind of way, the most consensus we've had about a film that has no consensus. It's like, we're all kind (laughs) of on the same page. All right. Well, that is this episode. That is The Nameless. You can't fucking find it anywhere legally uh, other than buying the DVD. So go do that. Just make sure that you don't buy the English dub version like I did. That's a whole other podcast. We'll have to talk about that another time. <laughs> Joe, uh, for people that want to listen to Horror Queers podcast, that want to see the writing you do for a variety of different sites, that want to know why they shouldn't watch Penny Dreadful, the new season of Penny Dreadful, um, <laughs> where's, the best, where's the best places to follow you on social media?
2: Okay, if you're interested in Horror Queers, which is a podcast that I co-host with my lovely friend Trace Thurman of Bloody Disgusting, you can find info on the show as well as links to the show. Uh, Follow us on social media at Horror Queers, that's Twitter and Instagram. And if you want to see my writing for a bunch of different outlets, including that aforementioned not great season of Penny Dreadful... You can follow me at beast on my remote, and that's the letter B.
1: Donato, would you please promote your work and yourself? Sure. You can follow me at DonatoBomb on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Hopefully, I'll be doing more writing once the world is not literally on fire. Mm. But until then, I will tell you where I'm writing and wherever I can find a budget. So if you are an editor and listening to this and have a budget, I would love to write for you.
0: Hey, hey, we got a lot of hungry mouths here on this podcast. You don't get to shield that spotlight.
1: <laughs> oh, no, I do. I, when I'm talking on the mic, I get to do whatever I want.
0: That's very fair. Depends on who As for myself, this is my episode, I think. As for myself, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Labsplice, L-A-B-S-P-L-I-C-E. And as always, if you liked what you listened to today and you fucking learned something, so you fucking better have, uh, you can please leave a review for our podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or just email us and let us know. You heard us talk about our need for validation for 15 minutes, hint, hint. So <laughs> let, us know, let us know what we're doing. Let us know if you have a film recommendation. Just reach out to us on social Media. Let us know you're listening. Joe, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, man. I was looking forward to it, and you did not disappoint. That was a fun conversation.
1: Uh, thanks for having me. This has been months in the making. <laughs> yes, yes it's been I apologize. <laughs> it's been
0: a long time in the making. Donato, that is your sign to take us off as we always go.
1: Uh, stay safe, everyone, and
0: damn nope. it.